Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Co. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Say hello, Guy. Hello. <laughs> this so are you, Hui, are you Hui of the Alabama Woodworker, or are you Hui the Alabama Woodworker? I, I have Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker. And you know, I don't know. I, you know, I got to figure out my identity. I got to yeah, figure that out. <laughs> I don't know what to call you. I would say you're the Alabama woodworker. The Alabama woodworker. There what do you got. think, Sean? Yeah, I think the. Okay. Well, I just <laughs> wanted to straight. I just wanted to get that straightened out. Now that we have that straightened out, this podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign. And if you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And wait until the end of the, the podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the things we've got going on in the shop. And uh, let's get right to it. Guy, you've got the first question today. All right. So Jeremy asks, I have heard you all talk about how much you love and use your MFT tables and tops. And I love mine for those sweet square 27-inch crosscuts. What I haven't figured out yet is how to utilize it for much of anything else. I think one of you mentioned it as an assembly table, but it would be awesome to hear more ideas on how you utilize it in your shops. Thanks, Jeremy. I think I'm the only one that actually has an MFT top. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. I um, have something... Similar, similar to it. Yeah. Yeah. Same layout, same dog hole layout. Yeah. And that's the reason I took this question. Cause there's the, the, yeah, there's some sweet things you can do like the 27 inch cross cuts. You can use the dogs and the rail dogs and stuff like that. It really does a great job, but I do use mine as an outfeed table. I also use it as assembly table and those Festool clamps and the, the, the you know, I know they're pricey, but they have a bunch of different kind of clamps you can use. Mm -hmm. And the clamping options that you get on that is just fantastic. I, I miss that so much being at, you know, work in my, uh, where I work in a production shop. They don't have anything like that. Hell, we don't even have a woodworking vice in the shop. Dang. So yeah, think about that for a second. So <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> yeah. So every time, every time I want to clamp something to the tabletop, I got to clamp it to the edge. Or I have to make it, and I actually take uh, scraps of wood and I screw them down into my work surface. Yep. If I've got, you know, like a, a run of like 20 pieces I got to do, I don't want to sit there and clamp and unclamp, clamp and unclamp, clamp and unclamp. And I make these jigs where the stuff goes in there. With an MFT, you don't have to do that. Right. Because they have these awesome clamps. You just stick the piece in, you hit, you know, flick it real quick and it locks it in. Mm-hmm. And that's really where it shines. I wouldn't say necessarily for an assembly table, but for a power tool joinery table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is where it really comes to to, to into its own with mm -hmm. all the different clamping options. Now, I know, Hui, you have what you call your moat, which is your multi... Functional outfeed assembly table. Yeah, yeah. It's basically so how, the how, well, how does multi-function outfeed assembly table equal moat? That's a mafoat. A mafoat. Um, well, outfeed, I'm, I'm counting as one word. I guess I'm not counting that as two separate words or hyphenating it or anything like that. But okay. yeah, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I love all the clamping options. And here's the thing. Yes, Festool does make a lot of clamping options and they are pricey. There are other third party options as well. In my opinion, I don't find them to be as good, but they're not bad. Um, and, and there are options I would agree out with there. You, on that. you know, the one I'm talking about specifically are those clamping elements, those cam clamps. Those things are awesome. And yeah, I yeah. understand they're plastic, but there's something about the way they grip the holes that and the way they're machined that's just slightly different than the than the competitors. Every time I've used or tried the competitors, they always lift. They always take and, and like yeah. they put almost too much pressure on them. Anyway, um, there are, you know, like I said, other options out there that are not Festool. But right there with you, Guy, I use it mostly as a machine joinery bench. And that's what I love it for. And just like you said, when I first started woodworking, I was woodworking at a community shop. 
and they had just your like your traditional workbench, which is great for traditional woodworking where you've got to really clamp something down and pound it. But when you have to clamp something in the center of your workbench, you can't do that unless you drill out a dog hole. And you know for darn sure the community workshop's not going to allow you to drill a nice big old stinking dog hole in the middle of your in the middle sure of their- they will <laughs> no they didn't just say it was that guy over there exactly exactly while the wood chips are all around me right uh, but yeah well you, know, you gotta sweep them up and move them over <laughs> and put them in the put them in the floor sweep but just having that ability to clamp something more towards the center of your workbench really helps a lot. And that's where I think it really shines is in those situations. Now, Sean, have you ever used something like that or? No, I've not. Um, have you ever I, thought I, about it? Oh yeah. I would love to have one. I probably should have thought about the assembly table that I made before I made it. Now it's just four by five box that I've got to, uh, to figure mm-hmm. out what to, what to do with it. Um, I would like to go a little bit smaller and get, an MFT or build something similar to the MFT and use it, put a mobile base on it, put some, some wheels on it and stuff to use it. What I would like to do is, you know, have a couple of them, throw them in the middle of the floor, break down plywood, be able to move them back and use them as an assembly table. But yeah, using them to hold down the pieces while I'm using the domino or something like that mm-hmm. uh, would be really, really awesome. Cause right now I've just used my workbench and I don't have uh, any hold fast or anything. So it's just, it's just awkward, I guess that would make it a whole lot easier. You know, the, the thing is, too, I don't have an MFT table. I just have the MFT top. Right. I built my own frame and all that other stuff. And I looked at, there's all kinds of videos out there, and there's like jigs and stuff to make your own MFT top. And it's like, okay, I'm going to spend $180 on this jig to make an MFT top that I can buy for 100 Mm-hmm. Huh? But it's mm-hmm. you, you buy once, cry once versus what happens when you need a new top? You got to spend another hundred bucks and then another hundred dollars, another hundred dollars. Yeah, I've had my MFT outfeed assembly table, clamping table, whatever the hell you want to call it, for about six years. I'm on my second top. Mm-hmm. It's right. it, it's just much easier just to buy one. <laughs> yeah, I had I, I, I had there's a local guy here who um has a pretty nice CNC machine and I had asked him to make me an MFT top. It wasn't accurate. Huh. And it was a good machine. It was a very expensive CNC machine. And it wasn't as accurate as the one I bought from Festival for a hundred bucks. Huh. As crazy as that sounds. It, that top is only a hundred dollars. I don't have the MFT three top. I buy the MFT ten eighty top. It's a little bit larger than in the MFT3. I think it may be like, I shouldn't say $100. It may be $125. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's not, but it's the MFT1080. It's less expensive than the MFT3. That's why I bought it originally. But they still make the replacements for it. Right. Like I said, I'm only on my second one and I abused the hell out of my first one. You know, you can flip them over too. So, you got two tops. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess, Jeremy, the, the answer to your question is there's a lot of things you can do with the MFT top. It's like one of those things that you get that you don't realize how much you'll really use it until you get it. Yeah. And start getting some of the accessories for it. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Next time you're doing something in the shop, just think, how could I utilize the MFT for this? task? Is there any clamping or anything that I can utilize to make this easier on me? Yeah, absolutely. So who's got the next questions? That would be Sean. That would be, uh, this, uh, says, Hey guys, Isaac from Teton Woodshop. I have a question about drum sanders. I recently bought a drum sander because I don't like sanding shocker. And I thought it would cut down on sanding time for panels. However, I found it left deep scratches in the wood that took quite a while to sand out with a random orbital sander. I'm finding it much easier to just make sure my boards are flat, lined up the glue joints with the dominoes, and then sand it with the random orbit sander without using the drum sander. This process seems much faster for me. And, you know, when I first got my drum sanders or sander, I don't have more than one. Uh, <laughs> I had the same impressions uh, when I was running my boards through there. I figured it was a magical tool to save me time and get the boards finished sand ready and flatten them out and all of that. And, you know, that's one thing that people in, uh, videos on YouTube and articles and stuff, they don't really mention. They mention, well, if you're 
sanding with 120 grit in the drum sander, be sure to start with that same grit on your orbital sander yeah. uh, and then sand up through the grits. Mm-hmm. And I personally, and I'm, I'm not speaking for Guy or Hui, and I'm sure they're going to let me know what they think, but I personally, I don't know, I, I just dislike that. So what I do is, I, f- I find it takes a lot of time, but I, I put 150 grit in my drum sander, and um, but I'm only taking extremely light passes and I'm only doing finish work. If, uh, you know, if my panels are not going to clamp up flat during a glue up, if they're, if they're off a little bit, okay, I'll run it through the drum sander. If they're real bad, I'll fix that and then glue them up. But I'm only doing real light sanding with the drum sander. Uh, so if you're using something like an 80 or a 120 grit, I mean, you're probably going to get the grooves that you're talking about. It's just the, the nature of the beast. And that's why I go with 150. Now you can start with 120 or 80, change the paper in your drum sander and progressively get finer on the grits. And then you can go all the way up to 220 on a drum sander, probably even higher than that. And then, you know, use the random orbit sander to smooth it out. So you can change the grits in your sander to minimize the, the grooves that you're talking about. But I only put 150 in mine, unless it's a crazy job that I need to put 80 or 120 in, but I always still finish with the higher grit. And even though I say 150, I'll still go back to 120 grit on my random orbit sander and then work through the grits like normal. Yeah, you could bypass a drum sander if you have a perfectly flat uh, glue up, but eventually you're going to have to, you're going to have the, uh, the glue up that just didn't go as planned. And, you know, it's best to figure that out now. And I would try to work up the grits in the drum sander before switching to the random orbit sander. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's my feedback on that. Uh, Hui, what, what are your thoughts on this? I generally start at 120. I generally start at 120 and, you know, maybe it takes a little longer at that 120 to, to get it where I need to. But uh, yeah, I, I generally start at one. So you're starting at 150? Yeah. Huh. Okay. I don't do, I don't do crazy amounts of uh, sanding. So if I've got problems with my panel glue up for some reason, I'll fix that instead of sanding and sanding and sanding and sanding. But yeah, 150 seems to work fine for me. Really, really light passes. And uh, yeah, works good for me. Now, I'm, I don't, I'm not a, you know, eight hour a day woodworker, but for my weekends and nights, 150 is what I like to do. I will wholeheartedly admit that I'm pretty bad about realizing I should have put that through the drum sander a little too late. Uh, you know, I think because I'm just so used to grabbing before I had a drum sander, of course, I'm just so used to grabbing, you know, my random orbit sander and then I'm, I'm in the middle of it and I think, Oh, darn it. I should have done this on the drum sander. But again, when I'm using the drum sander, I normally start at 120 and then I'll progress up from there. But Do you use change oh. grits in your drum mm-hmm. sander or you just stay at 120? No, no, I'll change grits. I'll go 120, 150, uh, 180, maybe 220, or I'll just finish it by hand with with 220. So how about you, Guy? I keep 120 in mind pretty much about 90% of the time. Yeah. The only time, I shouldn't say the only time, here's what I use my drum sander for. Frame glue-ups where I've got some kind of joinery and there might be inconsistencies in the height, you know, where I've got like a little ridge there or something. I look at the, the drum sander as not a tool to sand my work because that's not really what it's for. What it's for is to flatten your work. And that's the way you have to look at it. So if you have a panel glue up that's flat, there's absolutely no reason to run it through your drum sander. Agreed. That would just, my, my glue up's fat, flat. I got, and if I run it through the drum sander, I got I got still have to hit it with the random orbit sander. And what, what, what Isaac is talking about is those grooves. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have a panel and there's some ridges and stuff you want to get out of it. You know, you can scrape it, you can hit it with a hand plane, but it's not going to be perfectly flat. So you put it through your drum sander with, let's say, a 120 grit mm-hmm. to get those, you know, the the one board is, you know, maybe a 32nd of an inch under the other one in one section of the glue up. So you put it through your drum sander at 120 and you get it flat. Now, everything is perfectly flat. It's all on the same plane, but you have these grooves in it now. That's absolutely correct. So what I do after I run something like that through as I do two courses of the same grit that I ran it through. Right. So if I got 120, that means I'm going to touch that surface 
twice with 120 grit to get rid of those sanding grooves. And then I'll look in a raking light to make sure they're actually gone. That's where I really think the big misconception about drum sanders is that it's this big, huge time saver. I'm never going to have to sand again. Oh boy. Absolutely false. That's yeah. not what it does. Mm. It it's can actually pattern one way too. You got to, yeah, it can actually cause you more work in some cases. Oh yeah. However, what I'm saying is well, I use it to flatten things. So let's say, you know, like I did my kitchen Pretty and I've got all those door frames I made. None of them are, were perfectly flat when I got done with them. Right. Yeah. They're they all, there's always a little bit inconsistency between the rail and the style. Drum sander, boom. And since I was using a high build conversion varnish through the sprayer, I didn't have to worry about those deep scratches because I'm using a high build finish. So I just went over them with 120, one, one course of 120, one course of 150. And then I'm using a high build finish with a, with a, a primer beforehand or a sealer beforehand. They're smooth as glass. Oh, right. did you paint? Well, I used a high build conversion varnish. Pigmented. Pigmented. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, what it does is it, it, it creates like a film finish. Yeah. Yeah. So it fills okay. in all those little grooves. So yeah. if you're putting like a, a hand rubbed oil finish on it, no, it's not going to get rid of those things. Yeah. You're going to see it's Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, that's what I use my drum sander for mm -hmm. is to flatten things. I don't use it as a sander. I can't remember who it was. I was watching a video once they were talking about how they love their drum sander so much. It's going to be part of their milling process on lumber. I was like, what? Huh. What are you talking about, dude? That's not what it's for. No. It's, it's, it's really for, you have to think of a drum sander as a very small wide belt sander that right. you would find in a production shop. And all that's designed to do is flatten things. It's not designed to dimension them. It's not designed to finish sand them. It's designed to flatten things. That, as I said, that's just my opinion. That's the way I look at it. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I don't use it as often as I do. I mean, I'm not coming off of a panel glue up unless it's a fairly big panel glue up, in which case it's not going to fit through my drum sander anyway. Yeah. But I'm not coming off of like a medium, small to medium sized panels where I'm getting like huge grooves or, or inconsistencies in between the panels. So, I mean, I just go to the, yeah, I just go to the random orbit sander, right? Because I mean, I don't mm -hmm. need to take out that groove or anything. I mean, maybe just a little bit of card scraper or just the random orbit sander is going to take away maybe that, that glue ridge line or whatever. But anyway, I, I, I understand what you're saying guy. And yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I don't actually run a lot of things through the drum sander is because I'm, I, I don't see a need. So yeah, because if it's not if it's already flat, yeah, then there's you know, no the reason way you would, would work. We your stuff is freaking perfect, anyways. Oh yeah, right. So why the hell do you need to? Why why do you need to flatten stuff? It's flat. It's flat. You're you're gluing your stuff up flat to begin with. Right. It is a luxury, you know. To to to, to Isaac's question, it, yes, it is a luxury to have one. It really depends on what you use it for. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. You know? If you don't have perfect panels by all means run it through there and then yeah. you know try a couple different grits keep progressing and then switch to a random orbit sander mm. you know that that's because if you think about it you know, unless you have one of those oscillating drum sanders and even then they're not perfect you're just standing in one direction so you're going to have to remove those scratch that scratch pattern with a random orbit sander mm. in my opinion mm -hmm. yep i wouldn't feel oh, comfortable absolutely. absolutely yeah all right hopefully that helps we off to you and this question is from Brian, and it is another sort of Festool question. And sorry, we didn't plan it this way. You guys are just interested in this stuff. So, you know, we're going to we're going to answer it. Uh, I bought a cordless DeWalt track saw. I picked it up because of the two way track and you don't have to spin the tracks around as much when breaking down plywood. It was my first mm. track saw. Now I'm realizing that I can't use the aftermarket accessories available to Festool track saw owners like the parallel guides and the 90 degree guide. Do you think these accessories are worth selling my DeWalt and getting the Festool? I would like to move to final cuts with my track saw as mentioned by Guy in the last episode. 
man, this is a really good question. Uh, when I was looking at track saws and really, honestly, the reason why I went to a festival track saw was because it had so many accessories, aftermarket accessories, like you said here, the parallel guide, the 90 degree guide. I also use uh, the track with my router to cut long dados or things that um, that I might not necessarily want to do on my table saw if it's a really wide panel or something that I have to cut a dado in. Uh, I prefer doing that with the router and the guided by the track on the on the uh, festival track. Um, so I can only think of those sort of three major things as to what really sort of pushed me to get a festival track saw over the DeWalt. Now, I do know that a lot of the accessories for Festool are also compatible with Makita and Triton. Am I correct on that? I think that's true, yes. right? Okay. So again, I don't know how those function. Um, I, well, actually, no, the Makita, the Makita track saw is pretty good. I like that. And I will say that, yeah, everything, all the accessories that I have for the Festool track is compatible with the Makita track. Uh, so that's not, you know, Festool's not the only one. Now, I don't know. You have a Bosch, right, Sean? Nope. I have a Makita. Oh, you have a Makita. Okay, okay. So so, you're, yeah. so everything you have, I mean, did was that one of the guiding factors for you in terms of getting a Makita was because there were aftermarket accessories that were compatible? Yeah, absolutely. And I recently switched to, well, I haven't switched. I purchased the, and, the really long Festool track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my opinion is from the tracks that I have that the very limited sampling here, uh, that the festival tracks are just better than my Makita track. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. We Makita talked about that one. And I was like, so most people say, well, I want to buy the Makita track because they're so cheap, but you're saying the exact opposite. I want to find the In my track. limited experience, I've got two of the 55 inch Makita <laughs> tracks and the really long Festool, and the Makita tracks are just warped a little bit. Ooh. The Festool is dead flat, and it's is it a shipping thing or a manufacturing thing? You think manufacturing? Because if you read online, oh. there's all kinds of folks that have the problems with their tracks. Huh. The uh, the saw is great. I've never used a Festool track saw to tell you uh, which is better. Uh, we actually, you have both. Um, if you yeah. know any pros and cons off the top of your head between the two, well, it, it's hard to say. It's not an, a direct apples to apples comparison. Um, the Makita that I have is a battery powered one. It's, you know, I have it intended as sort of like a site job site saw. Um, so you're not, you don't have the same power, although it does cut pretty nice and pretty clean. And I've cut uh, eight quarter, no, not eight quarter, I'm sorry, six quarter, inch and a half thick walnut with it. And it, it, it did fine. I will say that in order for that saw to really shine, you need the Makita blade, which is a thinner kerf. It's much thinner, and it uh, it is at a, a higher tooth angle than the uh, the Festool blade. So, can I jump in here now? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not going to let you, we're not going to let you talk, guy. Okay, okay, I'll go away now. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. You're allowed. Okay, so reading Brian's question, he's mm -hmm. saying, should I get rid of my DeWalt to get a Festool because of the accessories? Yeah. My answer to that is absolutely. Mm. And those are the things that we and Sean have both been talking about. Almost all the third-party accessories yep. for track saws only fit the Festool, the Makita, or the Triton. Mm -hmm. I have not used the Triton track saw, but it doesn't look like it's very impressive. Um, I know some people that have it and say it's okay, but they don't rave about it like they do the, the Festool or the Makita. Yeah. I have not used the Makita, so I can't say one way or the other about that saw. Mm -hmm. um, I have a Festool... TS55, which means it can cut to a 55 millimeter depth mm -hmm. at 90 degrees, which is a little over two inches. If I had to do over, I would get the Festool TS75. Yeah. Which has a, uh, a 90 degree cut of, what's that, three inches? Yeah. 75 millimeters. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's got some more power. It's got a higher, they don't rate them in horsepower, they rate it in amperage and it's got a higher amperage motor to it. Yeah. But the Bikita, from what I understand from talking to, to Sean about it, and I know a couple other guys that have the Makita is also a very good saw. Mm-hmm. You may have to get festival tracks according to Sean, but the, the, yeah. the saw itself is, is a solid contender. Yeah. And all the third party accessories that you can get, because now you've got that type of track. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. None of that, none of that crap works on the DeWalt. Yeah. Yep. None of it. I will say that's pretty, if I'm reading his, question right can he just put the saw on either way on the track and it has that zero clearance on either on both sides i, I don't know that's the way it sounds i didn't know that if so that's pretty nifty maybe he can flip it but do you get that zero clearance cut edge to me that yeah. indicates that you can set it down and cut from one way or the other yeah because i know that's kind of a thing when you're doing the festival so you gotta really think ahead sometimes so that, I, I see that as an advantage, but I think, I think the biggest disadvantage, regardless of the two-way track, is that the third-party accessories don't work, like the stuff that Seneca makes for the parallel guides or yeah. the stuff Woodpecker makes. Or TSO. TSO yeah. Products makes. Yep. And there's other manufacturers out there that make this stuff for the saws, and it only works with Festool, Makita, or Triton. Oh, I'm looking at the DeWalt track saw, and it looks like it can be flipped. So, but you would have to put a um, a zero clearance edge on both sides in order for that to work. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think you're right. I think having all those third party accessories is really. I know cool. I'm right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> With that, since we know Guy is right, I think Guy, you you have the next question. We got to move on to you. Oh, I do have another question. Yes, you do. Okay. I thought I only get one tonight. Oh no! I thought I was being punished. No, you picked you picked two today, yeah. didn't you? Day of, I mean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's an inside joke, guys. I won't get into it. Uh, okay, so this is from Patrick, and it says, "Hey guys, I this is kind of a this is a finishing question. So, hey guys, I've been wanting to switch over to water-based spray finishes for a while." Since for the foreseeable future, my shop will remain connected to the house. Well, join the club. <laughs> yeah. I either use a convernish varnish, a conversion varnish, or Danish oil than wax. Doing oil and wax is a great look, but too time consuming for any real deadlines. That leads to conversion varnish, but requires a nice day outside or for the wife and kids to leave the house for a little while, museum, zoo, park, etc. Neither is practical, and plus, I wanted to go to the zoo too. It's oh, nice <laughs> you want to spend time with him. Um, the argument against water-based finishes is the clear, milky look instead of a rich, deep glow. But couldn't you just spray an amber shellac first, sealing it and giving it the beautiful color that solvents give, then finish with a quality, high water quality water-based coat, thinking something like Target Coatings MTech line which is a water-based conversion varnish. Side note, I have used Rubio. I don't mind it on occasion. He says he knows I'm not a fan, but I hate having to mix and the lack of options for the, for the sheen. Thanks, Team Patrick. So I'm going to address the first part of his question, and I agree with you. One of the problems with a water-based finish, whether it's a water-based polyurethane, a water-based lacquer, or a water-based conversion varnish. All of these finishes typically, not always, but typically are what they call water white. Mm -hmm. So they dry perfectly clear and don't enhance the color of the wood at all. What I see all the time, and I just want to scream, is people taking walnut and just spraying or putting a water-based polyurethane over the top of it and go, oh, look how the grain's popping. It's like, <laughs> what, are you, what, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. It looks exactly Love like it figure. did before it was on, before you put any finish on it. It dries perfectly clear. Yeah. And what happens, and that's why I was saying it's water white, it dries perfectly clear and doesn't imbue any type of character to the wood at all, like an oil-based finish. So we put oil on, let's, let's say, something like a, a walnut crotch, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of cool stuff comes out and yeah. you look at it one way and it's one color. You look at it one way, it's another color and it's mm-hmm. got all these different patterns. It just looks awesome, yep. right? If you put a water-based finish on that, you know what it's going to look like? Exactly like it did before you put the water-based finish on it. And this is one of the big things that a lot of people don't like the water-based finishes for. So another reason he's saying that, or and he doesn't say it in here, he kind of does, he hints at it a little bit, but he doesn't say it outright, is that he doesn't want to spray it in his house right? because using a conversion varnish or a, or a lacquer, pre-cat lacquer, it's stinky. Yeah. It'll sure. stink up your house for a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nasty. While a water-based finish won't do that, However, with the conversion varnish or the, the, the pre-cat lacquer, whatever kind of lacquer you may be using, it gives it that amber hue that you get from right. an oil-based finish. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I know this is a long answer. I know you guys want to jump in, but let me just finish. And I apologize for taking so long. No, this is good. This is good. I'm learning, so what, go ahead. What Patrick wants to do, and this is a very good question. He's saying, can I take amber shellac and coat that first to give give himself that amber hue that he's looking for, to give that walnut crotch to make it pop, mm-hmm. make it look good, mm-hmm. and then use a water-based solvent or, or water-based finish over the top of it then he can have his cake and eat it too. Right. The answer to that is absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to fly. Mm. I'll spray a couple coats of, of, of amber shellac on it. I'll get the nice amber tones. I'll get the, it'll pop the grain. I'll, I'll rub it back a little bit and then it dries really fast. I usually give it 24 hours anyways, and right. then I'll start putting a water. And I've used just, I've just brushed on, you know, everything from water-based polyurethane, like a polycrylic mm-hmm. or the, what's the general finishes one? Uh, high performance. High performance, which yeah, are sorry. both water white. Yep. But those are both film finishes. Yes. And they, they will build up fairly quickly. So you have to be careful, just like regular polyurethane. Mm-hmm. And you'll get that nasty plastic look over the top of it. Right. So if you're using something like a conversion varnish or a, a water-based conversion varnish or a water-based lacquer, which I've used the Mtech stuff, and it's great stuff. That's from Target Coatings out in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Great online ordering system. I highly recommend taking a look at it. You can apply a, a mill finish, you know, like a five mil wet finish on this stuff, and it dries. You, know, it, it, you won't get that really thick film finish on it, mm-hmm. but you'll get the deep amber tones from the shellac, and you'll get the protection of a conversion varnish, right? Which is awesome. So, mm-hmm. and it won't stink up your house. Yep. So go for it. There are, and now I'm going to say one more thing, and I've probably covered everything you guys are going to say, but that's okay. I feel, I feel the need to. There are uh, General Finishes makes one, and I think oh, sure yeah, I knew you were going to call that. <laughs> that was going to be my thing. I'm just literally sitting on that website right now. I'll oh my up. gosh. Okay. So, is there any way around this and just using a truly water based finish without using slack? Hui. I think the only other thing I could have mentioned was, was what you were about to say, which was the Endurovar. Now, I've not used Endurovar, and I don't know how it how it performs. I've heard what, positive what exactly things. What is Endurovar? Hui? Endurovar is general finishes water-based. It's water-based urethane, so they call it like oil-modified. Uh, yeah, but it's supposed it oil-modified. Oil-modified. <laughs> oil-modified water-based, water-based urethane or something like yeah, that, right? yeah. If you would like, I could read you the the blurb. I'm on sitting on their page. Go, go, go for it, Sean. Go for it, Sean. Endurovar Wood Finish is a self-cross-linking, oil-modified, water-based polyurethane that looks more like an oil varnish than a water coating. It ambers slightly, is highly water-resistant, and is both sprayable and brushable. 
Now you've used it, right, Sean? Yeah, I didn't like it, but I brushed it. Mm. I could not, could not avoid streaks while brushing it or but no streaks or bubbles, one of the two. Mm. I absolutely disliked. I love the color of it, but mm. I dislike brush or uh, yeah, brushing it. Now spraying mm-hmm. it, I've heard people had great success with it. I like the color of it. It does amber it slightly. Uh, so maybe give that a look if you're spraying it for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, Hui, you've used uh, the Sherwin-Williams version of that, correct? I did. Well, or something. I, no. was, I saw, didn't you use something like that? When I, you did use, your, I use Aqua Plus. I used Aqua Plus and it was tinted. And then I used Sherwin-Williams conversion varnish which was not water-based. It was a, it was a stinky, stinky varnish. And yeah. I'm questioning myself if I ever want to use that again, to be honest, because it was so stinky. And uh, I'm, I might not go that route again. Because, like, you know, I wanted to try it. And I, I hear, like, great things about using conversion varnish. It dries so fast. It's, it's easy to use. It's not difficult to use. The problem, it's so stinky. It's yeah. really, I mean, my wife came out to the garage and she's like, I feel like I'm getting high out here. I mean, it's that bad. Did you look at her and say, dude, I'm so stoned right now? <laughs> no, no, no. She got out of the house. She's like, I got to leave. <laughs> <laughs> but I, again, you know, if, you've, if you're attached to, uh, if your garage, like most of us, if your garage or you're in, you're in the basement or something, it's probably not a good idea to, to use it unless you spray outside. And, yeah, and the problem with nasty. spraying outside, especially in Alabama during the spring or even the fall for that matter, is the fallout from the pollen and all the other stuff. So and eh. it's humid as hell down there too. Oh right? gosh, yeah, and you get it yeah, flashes it's, it's, off it's, too it's, fast. The temp- temperature doesn't really affect the finish as much as humidity does. Right. Mm-hmm. When it's when it's drying. So you know, I'm 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 not a finishing expert, but I've used a lot of this stuff because I've i for for the last couple, mm-hmm. well, last at least the last two years, I've really been experimenting quite a bit with the water-based finishes and spraying. Yeah, that's why I got a different. You know, I upped my game as far as my spray system is concerned, mm-hmm. and I started using some different manufacturers' finishes and things like that. You know, Patrick. Patrick's question of, you know, could I do this and then top coat it with that? Yes. Yep. It works very well. Or you can use the, what'd you say, Sean? Oil infused thing. I, I've oil used modified. The oil modified. I've used the Endurovar before and I sprayed it. It's still a, a very film-like finish. Mm-hmm. So... You know, you have to you, you put a couple three coats on there to to put the protection on it, but it's it's a film finish. It's yeah, a thick can. film finish. While the 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 water based conversion varnish and water based lacquer looks more like a solvent based finish. It doesn't have that heavy look to it. Yeah. So for whatever that's worth. But you've got All that right. nice new spray system there, Sean. You should try some of that stuff, man. I've got plenty of time on my hands now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. well, actually I, I say that kind of joking about, cause I had a tool that broke, but I can't build anything cause the tools broke. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But order some of that stuff that target, uh, you know, go to target, targetcoatings.com and they've got all kinds of stuff there and they, they ship really fast. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not being paid to say that I really like their stuff mainly cause I can get it so quick and it's easy to order. Mm-hmm. So, and you can get pigmented stuff using, you know, Sherwin Williams or um, Benjamin Moore color codes, mm-hmm. and they'll pigment it for you. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry that was such a long question, guys, but I, I think that's a, a a question a lot of people have about mm-hmm. that stuff. So, this is a good one. I liked it. All right, next one is from Eric. Help me settle a bet with my wife. She thinks I'm quote unquote injury prone in the wood shop. I always have band-aids on my hands and arms, and she jokes that I'm 30% band-aid at all times. I wouldn't <laughs> consider myself injury prone other than the one chisel incident last summer. Chisel into the index knuckle, 10 stitches, yada, yada, yada. My question <laughs> is, on a normal day, how many minor injuries do you receive? Cuts, scrapes, splinters, scratches, anything that requires a band-aid. What do you consider the normal course of a day on this kind of thing? I need to explain to her that this kind of thing is just the cost of doing business. Now, 
I think the first thing that I should get out of the way is is what is a quote unquote normal day for us. I think guys going to have more insights considering he does this day in yeah. and day out way more than we and uh, and I. So for me, I I probably will get a cut or something from either you know rubbing against some bottom of the table of the table saw and it scratches me, or maybe you know cutting myself off of a freshly milled and jointed board. Uh, luckily, you know I'm not complaining about that. But mm-hmm. maybe once a week, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't get cut quite often, but maybe once a week I'll get a. Luckily, I've not had knock on wood. I've not had to have any stitches while woodworking. Nothing too crazy. I did cut my finger on what was it? On the bandsaw blade, on the old uh, power uh, power matic. Listen to me, Porter cable. Big <laughs> difference. Uh, start, both start with a P. Yeah, both yeah. start with a P. Uh, easy to get mixed up. Um, but <laughs> no stitches, uh, just to normally just get cut off of, uh, stupid things, which I guess are better than serious cuts. Maybe once a week. What about, uh, Hugh, you, Hui, before we go on to guy who probably has more information on this, how often are you throwing the bandaid on, whether that be the regular bandaid or the liquid bandaid? You know, it's, it's more so the splinters. I get a lot of splinters. Um, I don't, uh, I'm going to say it. I wear gloves every now and then I do when I'm processing lumber, you know, I've got rough boards and whatnot to get grip on on pieces. I do wear gloves, but afterwards, you know, I, I get splinters all the time. And that's that's probably where I'm most injury prone. But uh, but yeah, I've had some I've had some pretty deep cuts from uh, from, you know, chisel blades, from planar blades that I ran my finger across for no good reason. Uh, but but I mean, maybe. Maybe like once a month, I get a you know pretty pretty nice cut where I've got to uh, put on a band aid. But again, I'm you know I think Guy is actually honestly a better person to answer this because he's in the shop so much more often than well, me. Do you think I, I'm like injury prone or something? <laughs> no, but you but you work with a lot of other guys. You got you got more data on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if I'd say more data. I've I've knock on wood. Or the microphone. Been, What's that? No, that was actually wood. That's my desk. I should have oh, done my dog's barking now. So <laughs> I've been pretty lucky. Yeah. I haven't had any major accidents. I stuck my hand in the router once. Mm-hmm. That was interesting, but not too bad. I've had a couple splinters that were more than splinters that were pretty big chunks of wood that have gone through parts of my hand. But that's pretty much it, man. I mean, I like we, I were, you know, I've got old man hands. So my skin is very thin on my hands, even though I work with them every day and have for, you know, the last six years, mm-hmm. almost every day mm-hmm. I've been working. I still don't have calluses on my fingers. So my skin is very thin. So I wear gloves almost 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people, oh, you shouldn't wear gloves. And I said, well, you know, I, I have to wear them because if I don't wear them, I can't grip boards because I have no oil in my hands. Mm. The boards just slip through my fingers. Yeah. And what's more it's dangerous, really hard right? To describe. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's part of getting old. And when, you know, with, I've got rough boards, so I don't want to get splinters. But then after I process the boards, I, you know, I look at them crossways and I cut my finger on the edge of a board. Yeah. Just because the edge is sharp. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's you know, I'm so saying. I don't, I don't use hand tools as much as either of you guys do also. Now I know that most people that are getting these cuts in their hands quite a bit, it's mostly hand tool related stuff, mm-hmm. chisels, plain blades, you know, yeah, yeah. like you, we, you know, you're, you're trying to, you know, do whatever with the plane. I don't know how you'd get a plain blade, plain blade problem, but no, it's a planer blade. Planer blade. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Not- um, <laughs> there's a plane blade. I said, what are you doing? Uh, so most, <laughs> most of the time I hear is, 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 is stuff that, that's chisel related. Yeah. Even when I use my chisels, because, you know, I choke way up on the, the, the blade or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And the edges of it are sharp. It cuts the sides of my fingers. I'm not necessarily sticking my, the, 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 the chisel into my finger, but just holding it. Mm-hmm. I have the same problem. Yeah, the bevels are so sharp. Yeah, yeah, that's where I get most of my. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding you. That's where I get most of my injuries from, 
is when I had, do have to do chisel work and I'm yeah, just holding the chisel Yeah, and I yeah. could cuts on the side of my fingers. Also, if I'm the only thing that really applies to my job, if I'm processing a lot of plywood, let's say I've got, you know, like three of these credenzas, credenzas to build and I've got to process, you know, five, six, seven, eight sheets of plywood, my, my hands get very dry and mm -hmm. the, cause it, it leaches out all the moist, what moisture I do have in my hands mm -hmm. gets leached out and my finger, my fingertips split open. It's the weirdest thing. I know I'm going to get you for Christmas. <laughs> what? Some moisturizer. <laughs> I put, I, I, I slather that stuff on every night when I get home, man. I put all kinds of crap on my hands. It still doesn't matter. But the, the ends of the tips of my fingers split open. And that, that actually hurt. It hurts like hell. I get really sensitive. So, um, but that's kind of a weird thing. As mm -hmm. far as the other guys, and now you got to remember that the, the, the guys I'm working with in my shop, these are not what I would call experienced craftsmen like, you know, you two guys. Oh, gosh. They're... No, what, what they are, I work, for the people who don't know, I work for a nonprofit, and what we do is we take uh, people that are, we're trying to reintegrate them into society mm -hmm. because they've had addiction problems, they've had prison issues, or they are homeless. And mm -hmm. we're trying to get them to teach them woodworking so they can actually go and actually live a decent life. Anyways, those are the folks I'm dealing with. These are not like professional mm. woodworkers. Sure, sure. Okay. And there's 12 to 15 guys in the shop at any given time. We have very few accidents. That's good. Very few. Most of the stuff is just, you know, simple splinters, mm -hmm. um, simple cuts from, you know, a sharp edge on a board. Mm -hmm. A lot of these guys do wear gloves because of that, because we're handling, you know, one of these guys may handle 200 board feet, 300 board feet of wood a day that they're putting through a thickness planer yeah. and a joiner. So they're touching it, you know, constantly. And it, it, it's kind of common for that. Uh, the only accident we've had since I've been there is I saw one of the guys, you know, we've got, we've got two saw stops and we've got a, a big slider. Some guy stuck his hand in the sliding saw. And chopped his fingers all up. Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty nasty. Um, but other than that, that's the only accident I've seen there. All right, so on a normal day, how many injuries do you receive? None. I mean, minor injuries. Yeah, so I was looking at this question again. None. And I, I, if you're getting minor cuts and stuff on every day, you might want to slow down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I may, I may throw a bandaid on once a month. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your wife may have a point if you're having to put <laughs> bandaids on every single day. Yeah. So hopefully that helps Eric. Uh, yeah. Just slow down. And, uh, <laughs> and, and again, I apologize for being long winded tonight. I, again, like last, last time we had the show, I've been drinking heavily again. Oh gosh. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so there's that. <sighs> All right. We, you got the last question. <laughs> Please this, take this, us home. Take us home. This question's from Paul. Hey, gents. Uh, wanted to say you have an awesome show going. Thank you very much, Paul. Wanted to know if you're, you've ever held off on making something because you don't have a specific tool or upgraded tool. For instance, I currently have a DeWalt job site table saw. So not the most reliable or accurate saw and I'm saving up for a cabinet saw and I'm thinking I'll be more comfortable making things then. Thanks again. You know, Paul, it's great that uh, I think it's great that you're saving up for a cabinet saw. You know, you're wanting to upgrade, you're wanting to take your woodworking to the next level. But I think it is a, actually a little bit of a common mistake that even myself have I've made. Oh, well, I can't do this because I didn't get the router to fit into the track of my uh my track saw or whatever i can't make that dado i can't make that groove uh and i've actually thought that in the past and i and i i think it's a little bit at least in my part it kind of at least talked to uh my overall experience in woodworking was a little lacking you know because i thought oh well i don't have that specific tool 
I can't possibly think of another way to do it. So therefore, this is the only way to do it. And I would say that I think there are other ways that you can do it, Paul. You know, for instance, if you wanted to make tenons on the table saw, I think you could do that. You might not be able to sneak up on the line, specific line that you want to get to with that table saw. You might have to go to your bench and use a chisel a little bit or use a, a block plane. But I think you can do a lot more than you think. And I would challenge you to try to do that. Um, I know that I should have done that early on in my woodworking. I think I acquired maybe tools faster than my learning ability or where my uh, learning was. And and it, to a certain extent, I don't regret it, but I think I could have been, I could have learned a whole lot more if I actually worked with the limitations that I had. Uh, does that make sense to you guys? Uh, I mean, Sean, I, I know that you've been working maybe the second most out of all of us. Did you ever sort of encounter that? Like sort of felt like you were limited by your tools and did you overcome that in any way? I wasn't limited by the tools. I, I was mainly frustrated by the lack of uh, precision that I was getting out of, for instance, when I, my very first table saw was a skill job site, $70 Black Friday saw. And nice. I wasn't limited on what I could do. I was just limited on the precision that I could get from the saw, which caused a lot of frustration. Um, I probably you know, may have been able to fix some of them with the knowledge that I have now, but you can't fix poor design, bad yeah. fences, you know, fences that deflect. Mm -hmm. uh, it, but it shouldn't stop you from continuing to learn and, and you know, moving forward. Just, you know, understand it, it's not always you that why stuff's off. And Good point. at some point, at some point, you're just going to have to upgrade to something that's more accurate. Otherwise, you're going to continue to be frustrated. Uh, but that all depends on the type of project that you're that you're doing. You know, are you doing fine furniture? Or are you making some outdoor furniture uh, where precision doesn't it, it's not the most important thing uh, mm -hmm. of the project. So I would just I would just think on that a little bit. And if you're going to pursue the craft um, upgrade as, as as fast as you can, once you know what you're going to be making, just mm -hmm. so you have the precision and the, and the frustration will be uh, will be gone for the most part. That's the advice that I have. What about you, uh, Guy? No, the, the question Paul's asking is, you know, if you've ever held off on making something because you don't have a specific tool or upgraded tool. And, and my answer to that would be yes, mm. I have held off on making a few things because it's like, I want to do this one thing. And I, and what you were saying a second ago, Sean, you had, there has to be a certain amount of precision and accuracy to it. Mm -hmm. And what I have or what I don't have, I can't get that precision or accuracy I need to do that one task. Mm -hmm. So I may hold off on doing a project until I can save up to get that specific tool or to upgrade a machine that I may have. Mm -hmm. um, I always try to look at a new project as an excuse to buy a new tool. Guilty. <laughs> I think we're probably all guilty of that a little bit. I look at things and I, I'll, I'll admit it. I'm a tool junkie. I love having all the cool stuff. Oh, for sure. I, I really do. Yeah. I mean, I'll be the first to admit it. I've got very expensive tools and I've got a lot of really cool accessories that aren't cheap. And I've got a lot of cool accessories, accessories that are cheap. I've just got a lot of stuff and I've accumulated tons of stuff over my career. So <laughs> my advice, Paul, is get it any way you can if you need it. That's, I know that goes that flies in the face of everything everybody says all the time. Do what makes you happy. If, and if, that, if that, getting that, that tool is going to make you happy for a while and help you with the project you're making and you think you're going to be able to do a better job with it, I say rock. Yeah. Go for it. I think the best excuse for getting a tool is because you want it. Yep. <laughs> I think that wraps up the uh, questions. Let's go through and talk about what we got going on in the shop. Uh, Sean, since you hit up uh, the last question, why don't you go ahead and uh, give us a rundown of what you got going on? All right. So I took this week off vacation and um, actually I started Tuesday and my joiner planer machine kind of exploded and the parts are back ordered for 18 business days. So oh, what, what happened? happened? I saw I the would, picture. It doesn't really say what happened to it. 
Yeah, I uh, well, when I took it, I wasn't in the best mood, so I posted sure. about it a little bit more in the comments and stories. But um, there's a pulley down on the bottom that the belt rides on for the I don't know one of the rollers. The um, retainer clip popped out. The pulley pull- pulled out a little bit, started rubbing against the door, and it was barely making contact with the sprocket, which destroyed the teeth on it, which oh. caused the machine to jump, which caused a chain pulley at the top to loosen up and the chain just chewed that up. So I've got a sprocket pulley that's destroyed and a chain pulley that's destroyed um, that I have to order. And the earliest, um, it says up to 18 business days, but I've I've seen some quotes where um, the parts are out of stock until September. So, Oh no. Yeah. So uh, I'm pretty much dead in the water in the shop as far as the joiner planer combo goes. So I've got a, figure something out um i've placed orders on two different websites just in case they come you know at different times i can cancel them if i need to did but you, did you call jet directly no i know what the parts are and i looked at the diagram and just ordered them online which orders their parts from jet so hmm. yeah it's just another way of doing it. i would call their tech support and say hey this is what's going on i need this thing up going now do you have the parts and they, they may do something for it. They may not. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth a call. It couldn't hurt to try. You know, that yeah. sucks. That's fine. Sorry, man. But at least you got a good bandsaw. <laughs> yeah, at least I can, I can stare at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I've got, I've got plenty of, uh, of other work to do on the bandsaw. Uh, I've got several more videos I need to make that installing all the accessories. I've got uh, extension tables to, to cover next. And then, belt sanding attachment and then the circle cutting jig. So that'll keep yeah. me busy for a little bit at least. Yeah. You've also got your CNC you can play around with too. True. True. I do, but I, I can't mill up any lumber. Yeah, so it's all sheet goods, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what I've got going on in the shop. Some frustration. So I, I went back to work. So today I, I went back <laughs> to work. I'm not going to take the, even though working from home. So I, I went back upstairs and got on the laptop. In other words. <laughs> Why take time off? <laughs> it's yeah. So pulled off my robe and I put on my pants and I sat down in front of the computer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so guy, what about you? What do you got going on in the shop? Out in the shop? Nothing at, at work. I've got some stuff going on, but I did, I did take some time recently to watch a video on YouTube of this guy named, oh, I can't think of his name. He's like the, the, the Georgia wood chucker oh or something like that. <laughs> <My goodness. laughs> he put together this video and it is a master class <laughs> in, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being facetious here. It is, he gives a master class in preparation for a project, execution as far as the jigs and the patterns that were made for it, the process of figuring out what needs to be done before other things. It is probably one of the best instructional videos I have seen in years. And that was Hui doing a video on his uh, build of six armchairs or six chairs. You're making me cry uh, right now, guy. Did you watch it, Sean? <laughs> Not yet. You need to. It's on my list. To. Everybody, it's a 20 minute, it's a long video. It is. It is. Uh, it's not, you know, action packed with. What? It's not action packed with great, you know, video angles and cameras on rollers and rock music and any of that. It's none of that crap. Well, what about the fast movements of his of no. the bits being shown? No. No, uh. none of that. This is not an entertainment video, but this is somebody that has, has spent a lot of time thinking about how they were going to do something, plan for it and just executed it perfectly thank you guy it was a it was a great video we thank you. i actually watched it twice i appreciate I that thank I you. Might have missed 
So you watched it that's where, twice. That's where I spent my time. I watched it twice. Really? Well, I'm 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 blushing. <laughs> you should be. It was it was a tremendous video, and everybody out there should watch it and comment on it. So Thanks. that's what I did woodworking wise. Other than the usual crap I do at work. What about you, Hui? Well, I put together a video, <laughs> but that video took a long time to put together. What's um, it about? It really, it, it's about the build process for those chairs that I built. I was joking. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> whatever. Whatever, Sean. Uh, I did finish. I did put. To, it's just like he, he's just back on his heels. He doesn't know which end is up right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm so confused. <laughs> Uh, I did put the shelf or, excuse me, drawer divider into the storage uh, storage bench that I'm building. And I did mill up the stock for the base assembly that the carcass and the bench will actually sit on. So um, that's about all I've got done this past week and a half because I've just been really busy with trying to put put that video together. I've been wanting to do it for a long time. And I think, you know, just not being on YouTube in a while and not doing that process for a while, it kind of, you know, slowed me down a little bit, but ultimately yeah. that's about, you, that's you about nailed it, time. brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, I think that wraps up what we've got for the show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who's left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we really do appreciate the feedback and support. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are there on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, Guyswoodshop.com. And Sean? Sean? Simplecove.com. And at Simplecove on social media. Awesome. Hey, guys, thanks for talking. And we'll see you on the next episode. See ya. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.